0: Welcome to Beyond Blathers, the podcast where we dive deeper into the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing New Horizons. I'm Sophia Osborne. And I'm Olivia Debersier. And if you want to support the show, please check out our merch store at beyondblathers.square.site and take a look at the animal stickers and postcards we have for sale. So this week we have the most special episode ever. Like, Just the most special episode humanly possible. (laughs) We're joined by the amazing Emily Grasley, who's going to tell us all about the Archelon, which is an extinct giant sea turtle from the late Cretaceous.
1: Yes, wow, this is awesome. So Emily is a bit of a celeb in the science communication world. If you don't know Emily's work, she started the YouTube channel The Brain Scoop in 2013, where she unpacks the behind the scenes of natural history museums through things like taxidermy, insect collections, discussions with museum experts, and of course, plenty of fossils. She was also the chief curiosity correspondent for the Chicago Field Museum of Natural History, which I think is probably the coolest job title ever. And this summer, Emily had a three-part documentary series air on PBS called Prehistoric Road Trip. In the show, she journeyed back in time by exploring fossils from the northern Great Plains region. And Sophie and I both loved the show, so we recommend checking that out online. And last but certainly not least, she is a big Animal Crossing fan, so we're really excited to have her on. Thank you so much for being here, Emily.
2: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I, I'm so excited to be here. I, I, I've been such a fan since I found out about this podcast. I was like, yes, this is what I need in my life.
1: Thank you. It's a very nerdy niche. <laughs> we're yeah.
2: like, I am here for it.
0: Yeah, so we're so excited to talk about the Archelon with you, but before we dive into it... We always check out what Blathers has to say about the animal we're covering. So, if you bring an Archelon fossil to Blathers, he'll say, Ah, yes, Archelon. It was a sort of huge sea turtle, the largest thus far found, if you want to know. They were very sizable, some 13 feet long, with a shell the size of a small car, if you're into that sort of thing. They likely ate seaweed, shrimp, octopus, and possibly ammonites, given the era involved. It seems certain giant turtles had to be prima donnas and eat some of the oldest life forms on earth.
2: Okay, I was with you for that whole thing until that last sentence. It's
0: like prima donnas. Blathers is very sassy. He is.
2: You know, I don't hate him for it. But yeah, I mean, that's a pretty good pretty good summary of Archelon. He I think you got the the main points there. I mean, they're big and and they're
1: sea turtle-ish.
2: I mean, that's basically it. It's for all extinct life. If you need an analogy for, you know, life that lives today, it's like pretty easy. You're like, it, it was just a giant turtle, you know, big turtle. Imagine a turtle. Yeah. And then just make it bigger. That was Archelon. But <laughs> there is so much more about this turtle than it just being a very large sea turtle. So There are so many reasons why I love Archelon, not least of all because it was the largest turtle that ever lived. So, Archelon is the genus of this animal. Archelon ischiros is the one species in the genus. When it was first discovered, it was thought that there might be up to three species, but they've all been synonymized, so now we're just settled on one. Which is pretty remarkable if you think about it, an entire genus, and there's only one species in it, and it's this huge animal. You've got to imagine that there were other similar gigantic turtles, but maybe we just haven't found them yet. So there's one reason that I love Archelon, and it's because this species, the holotype for this species, was found not very far from where I grew up in western South Dakota. So western South Dakota, South Dakota in general, is just like this amazing hot spot for so much geologic diversity Spanning a huge amount of time in the geologic record, so you can find rocks in the Black Hills that are three billion years old, 2.5 to around three billion, and you can find fossils that span, you know, a huge amount of time from 100 million years all the way through, you know, the end of the Cretaceous period, which is when Archelon is from, estimated to have gone extinct around 66 million years ago, so kind of around the time when everything else got wiped out by the asteroid. That destroyed the dinosaurs. Rest in peace, all the dinosaurs, except for birds. (laughs) And so Arcalon was, you know, living its best life out there. Another side note about South Dakota, they have fossil record all the way up through like mammoths from a hundred thousand years ago. So Arcalon kind of sits right in the middle of this sweet spot from the Pier Shale Formation, which goes all the way to the end of the Cretaceous period. So I think when we think of organisms that went extinct around 66 million years ago, the assumption is that they all went extinct because of the KPG impact. But that apparently isn't the case for Archelon. Like it was kind of living through that period of time, but its extinction was more attributed to things like warming of the ocean environment or a lack of prey. There's just a lot of things that were kind of at the tipping point right at that period of time. And then push came to shove and they all kind of went one way or another. So... Archelon is just amazing because when you think about all of the organisms that survived that mass extinction event, although Archelon wasn't one of those species that we find above the KPG impact line in the geologic formations that are dated for around that period, but turtles were some of the largest organisms that survived that extinction event. So once we see life recovering, You see relatives of Archelon. Like, there's all these other gigantic turtles and huge turtle fossils that are found afterwards. So I think that is so cool. It might not be Archelon exactly, but the concept that
1: turtles, turtles were the big winner. Turtles were the survivors. They made it through this, like, complete disaster of a planet. Exactly. And
2: I'm like, (laughs) "That that is the life. You know, they're just chilling at the bottom of the ocean or, like,
1: in these you know, shallow seas. I find that amazing too, because like when I think of turtles, I think of them going through so many hardships already. Like the little baby tur- like sea turtles on the beach, like absolutely like booking it to the water. And it's amazing to me that they survive it all, but they've also survived like some of the biggest mass extinctions the world has ever seen. And that blows my mind. That gives yeah. me hope for turtles now. I'm like, pull yes. through, you can do this. They can, they can. I mean, It's amazing. Turtles are so
2: awesome. They have the ability to like go into these dormant stages. I mean, if you think about even turtles here where I am in Illinois, we've got painted turtles and a bunch of other different, you know, freshwater species. But they've got to survive Chicago winters, you know, so there there's, you know, the lake freezes, water freezes, guys. It's very cold. But turtles have found a way to like go into the substrate. They learn how to breathe out of their butts. Like, it's awesome. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They're like, the oxygen exchange that happens is like, happens out of, I don't know the actual technical explanation for how this happens, but the takeaway is that turtles are awesome and they get, they've been through a lot. And so I can only imagine like all the other cool things that Archelon must have had to survive in order to get to the size that they were. You know, think about like Archelon eggs, although we don't have any, you have to imagine the hatchlings probably were not that much bigger than your average sea turtle hatchling. So think about all of the experiences of that little baby turtle and that it must have endured in order to get the size that they did, which was like 13 to 15 feet. I mean, the size of a VW beetle.
1: It's huge. (laughs) I just imagine like you're lounging on a beach and then like you look over and there's just like this massive turtle just like sunning itself or something and i just love that image yeah I, I want that for us in hawaii now but eating
2: squids you know
1: yeah chomping on an ammonite what a good time absolutely <laughs> so i so there's like a
2: couple of reasons why i love archelon the holotype is not the biggest specimen ever found but the holotype is the one that Wheeland discovered in western south dakota in, I think it was the late 1800s. So yeah, so Archelon the holotype was discovered in 1896 or 97 and described pretty close after that. Then they found, I think they've only found five Archelon in the world. Yeah. The largest one is in a museum in Europe, and I think it's the biggest one. It was 15 feet, but they're around like 11 to 13. They're pretty huge. The holotype is on display at the Yale Peabody Museum, or at least it was. They've done some renovations, but I imagine it'll go back on display. But there's this really cool picture of George Wheland standing next to the Archelon. And it's one of the most iconic pictures of, like, early paleontology because you have this man standing next to this huge sea turtle that's, like, two times his height. And one thing, like, I've seen this picture, I don't know how many dozens of times in history books, books about natural history or the founding of natural history museums or even paleontology in the American West – early on at the turn of the 20th century. And I never noticed that the holotype of Archelon only has three legs. <laughs> oh. I look yeah. at the
1: picture now and, yeah, I see. Yeah, it it's only like has three legs. It's back, back flipper.
2: Yeah, and so I thought that was really cool, too. It's like, no matter how many times you've seen this iconic photo, how many are going to realize that this, like,
1: amazing holotype is three legs. So they found the whole thing? Like, I mean, apart from the leg. Is that... Yeah, what they, found? Yeah, oh, they wow. didn't find the
2: skull. And I think they found like five of the eight vertebrae. So there are some pieces missing. But yeah, the closer examination of the leg led paleontologists to assume that it must have lost that leg really early on in life. You know, maybe even as a hatchling, it got, you know, nipped by a ancient seagull or something and lost a little leg. And uh, it didn't apparently have a huge impact on this animal's life because it was still able to reach a monumental size and its other little back flipper is a little stunted in its growth too. So they think it was just a developmental result of this early trauma. So I thought that was really interesting too because I think when you think of holotypes, you think of like the perfect, you know, example of an organism and having the holotype be this like giant three-legged turtle is just a really nice thing to think about in my opinion.
1: That's really cool. So I had a question. If if there's five specimens that have been found, how do they know that they went extinct, likely before the, the KPG extinction? I think it it all happens, and
2: all of those dates are based on the date of the formation in which they're found, right? You know, So that's how paleontologists are able to age certain fossils. I don't remember the exact name of the formation where Archelon is found. I think it's Mestrichian. And the date for Mestrichian is... 72 to 66 million years. So there's a little bit of wiggle room. So it could have been, you know, that hasn't been found any earlier than 66 million years. But knowing that that period of geologic time was 72 to 66 means that even if it went extinct, you know, 68 million years, that's still 2 million years before the extinction of the dinosaurs. There's a lot of wiggle room in a 2 million period of time. Like the complexity of all hominids, you know, like the earliest hominid fossils are 2 million years. Humans as a species have only been around for about 300,000 years. So clearly there's a lot that can happen in a, in a short amount of time. So, you know, it's estimated that at least they wouldn't have survived the extinction event if they existed up until that point, but it's more likely that they went extinct a little before
1: that time. Interesting. Yeah. That's really cool. Sorry to interrupt with that, but...
2: No, I mean, that's a great question. I was thinking about that too. Like, how do they know if they went extinct before or as, you know, if they went extinct as a result of something else? So food scarcity and all this other stuff. And that actually opens up a whole other bigger, more controversial topic in the world of paleontology because, you know, it, it was in the late 80s, early 90s when the whole concept of like the asteroid extinction even surfaced. And so that was a pretty convenient explanation for why there's not X number of species from that period of time going into the next geologic period after the Cretaceous ended. But there's still a lot of unanswered questions because during that time, there's also a lot of evidence of huge volcanic eruptions that were happening. So some paleontologists and geologists argue that the planet and the planet's biota was already kind of approaching a tipping point, And then the asteroid just pushed everything over the edge. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it was like enough of this. Right. Let's just finish him off and move on yeah. with the geologic history of the world. Yeah, exactly. Wow.
0: After watching Prehistoric Road Trip, I was just like lying in bed thinking about the part where you said like what if there's just another huge asteroid coming <laughs> towards us and I was like that would just be the perfect kind of end to this terrible chapter of like human history that's happening right now if just like an asteroid hit and there were just tsunamis and like literally global wildfires. Like, I was just thinking about that. That's some dark, dark bed thoughts. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Future geologists and paleontologists might be wondering the same question. They're like, was it climate change? Was it the American presidential, you know, (laughs) race from 2016 to 2020? Was that the tipping point? And, um, you know, the answer is maybe, but, you know. It's, it's hard to pinpoint it to one exact thing because the geologic record is so vast. I mean, it's not give or take 10 years. It's give or take a couple hundred of thousands of years. And there's so much that can happen in that amount of time.
1: Yeah, it's hard to remember that too. Like, I feel like my brain switches, like when I'm thinking of the past century, I'm like, okay, year by year. And then when I'm thinking about geologic time, like especially with dinosaurs and around that like 66 million years back point of time, in my brain, it's like just another year as opposed to a million years, (laughs) like I have to remind myself, tweak exactly how I'm thinking about that number. It's it's definitely a little bit too big for just a a light consideration.
2: Right. And that's actually one of the biggest challenges of working on Prehistoric Road Trip was trying to condense two and a half billion years of Earth's history into a three hour long program. I was like, (laughs) when I was working on the show, I was like, what? What did I agree to do? Like, why did I pitch this show? I could have just had like a, like a taken a, you know, diners, drive-ins and dives, Guy Fieri approach. And like, why couldn't I just show up and like being like, this is pretty cool. And like, try to not contextualize all of human and geologic history into a three hour special. But we've all made our choices in life and I've made mine.
1: (laughs) I think it's hard with paleontology too, because so many, like there's so much up for debate that it's sometimes stressful. I think trying to communicate what we think happened without, with like sometimes minimal evidence or just debated evidence. So I think that can be also difficult. At least that's what I've been finding with this podcast is trying to like summarize dinosaurs when I'm getting like conflicting, also valid information from a lot of different areas. Well, there's
2: just so much that we don't know. And paleontology as a field is pretty young too. I mean, you think about the history of physics or, you know, astronomy and all of this other stuff, it dates back centuries. And then paleontology is really since the 1850s. They were like, yeah. mm-hmm. people finally realize that there might be explanations for how and why things happened that aren't dependent on one religion or religious interpretation. And they start finding all these prehistoric things. And, you know, Western people especially were like, maybe there's, some, maybe there's something more to this extinct life idea. Maybe... Maybe, maybe everything hasn't been here forever. Hmm, interesting. The concept of extinction finally floated into the consciousness of European scientists. So yeah, I mean, paleontology, there's still so much we don't know. And so much of that like other knowledge that is just now being incorporated too. So that's a whole other topic we could get into.
1: <laughs> but back to the turtles. Yeah,
2: back to Archelon. <laughs> So I feel like we've kind of covered the baseline for Archelon. Like there's not that much more to explain. It's a giant turtle, probably ate ammonites, probably swam around the bottom of a shallow ocean. Uh, The Western Interior Seaway was this huge ocean that was in the middle of the United States around that time. So there's a lot of stuff coming and going in this Interior Seaway. Archelon was one of them. So Archelon ends up getting wiped out, gets buried, is excavated millions of years later by this fellow named George Wheland, And Wheland is uh, quite the character in the world of paleontology. So George Wheland was pretty young, I think, when he discovered and excavated Archelon. And I think it was part of a, a larger trip with early paleontologists from the Yale Peabody Museum. So George Wheland was born in 1865, and by the 19 um, late 1800s, early 1900s, was when he was doing this work on Arkelon in western South Dakota. And he quickly abandoned it. I think that's one thing I find really interesting about Wheeland, is because, you know, if I was somebody early, mid-career, my 30s or so, and I found the largest turtle that ever lived, I'd be like, this is it. You know, this is my area of focus. What a cool organism. You know, I want to have all these other questions. And Wheeland apparently just moved on. He was like, "Mm, it's all right. Like this giant turtle, I think there's so many other things that I could find. And what caught his attention were fossil cycads. And if you (laughs) just take a minute to Google Archelon and then Google fossil cycads and compare them one to the other... There's clearly one that is far more much of a charismatic organism. And mm-hmm. it's not, <laughs> spoiler alert, <laughs> it's not the cycads. Like the cycads <laughs> are giant. They look like pineapples without tops, just like huge pine cone looking things. And not to poo poo on cycads. I think there's so much we can learn about them. They were some of the earliest flowering plants. They are so interesting in their own right. But are they cooler than the biggest turtle that ever lived? I don't know jury's out for me
1: I think also like you're finding this giant turtle I feel like especially at the age it was found if I was a person in 18 what was it 95 Mm -hmm. I and I found a giant turtle in the middle of like prairies and like the most inland you could get I'd be like hmm this is of interest yeah seems (laughs) particularly unusual I feel like I just want to know what that thought process was
2: I do, too. I do, too. And I think if you dug into the literature, you might find some more explanation. Like, maybe he was just part of an expedition that found it, and the credit was really going to, I think, O.C. Marsh, you know, the the bigger name of paleontology at Yale at the time. You know, it could be any number of things. But regardless, by the 1920s, Wheeland had definitely moved on, and he had moved a little further west in South Dakota. And what had caught his attention were all of these fossil cycads, And they're a little bit older in age, around 120 million years. And all of these cycads were found in a place that is close to where Edgemont, South Dakota is today, if you want to just Google the kind of area he was working in. And he became obsessed with these cycads to the point where if you imagine what the 1910s, 1920s in South Dakota looked like there was nothing there. I mean, there was there were indigenous people who were being moved off their lands, but there was like one railway line and the end of it kind of ended in South Dakota. So this was really the Wild West, quote unquote, where paleontologists were just beginning to move westward from the East Coast and make their way across the United States. And it's like, they got to Western South Dakota and he was like, I'm here. Like I have arrived. These cycads are it. Going through all of this effort to get the train cars like built closer to the excavation site. And so Wheeland it starts finding all of these cycads and excavating them in the 1920s, loading up all of these train cars, like getting these huge, heavy cycads. Like I think a cycad, if it was the size of, let's say your average 60 pound dog, it was probably weighing hundreds of pounds because it's fossilized, like silicate plant material.
1: So these things were huge. Just like solid rock.
2: Yeah, giant boulders, one after another. (laughs) In fact, thousands of them. He excavated thousands of these things and loaded them up on train cars and shipped them all back to Yale on the East Coast. Holy smokes. Yeah, a massive undertaking because he was so obsessed with these things. He wanted to ask all of these questions about them and he basically wasn't satisfied with just taking a couple and doing his work. He's like, I need all of them. So he spends quite a bit of time... Excavating these cycads and shipping them back to the East Coast. And all the while, he's telling everybody about it. He's like, These cycads are so cool. They're so important. We need to preserve them. We need to preserve this area where they're found. I think that this should be a national monument. And he gets really impatient about getting this monument founded. So he finally decides that he's just going to purchase the land himself. At the time, it was not clear who owned it or who was managing the land, but through a Homestead Act in the early 1900s, he was able to acquire the land himself. So he purchased the land kind of with the understanding that eventually he would donate it back to the U.S. federal government if they set it aside as a national monument. And so he goes through this like decades-long campaign to get Fossil Cycad National Monument founded. And finally, in the early 1920s, 1922, President Harding finally wrote it into, I don't know, whatever federal legal document was required in order to get Fossil Cycad National Monument founded. And then they didn't do anything.
1: <laughs> they were just like, fine, have your national monument, chill out, and we're just going to give it a name. and
2: Yeah. And the rest will somehow come to fruition. But the problem was So it was declared in 1922. By 1933, like 11 years later, was when it first showed up on the National Parks Service like superintendent's list of properties. Like for 10 years, they just had, they like wrote it into protection and then didn't do anything about it. And in the meanwhile, like Wheeland was still just digging this stuff up and sending it back. So by the time somebody actually from the Park Service went out there to check out this amazing site, they didn't see anything. Like, there weren't fossils on the surface. They tried to look for them, they couldn't find any. There was no visitor center, there's no sign. There was nothing out there except for this, like, vacant field, supposedly with nothing there. And all the while, Wheeland is still, like, telling people, we need to preserve this land. He even got some of the architecture students at Yale to draft up blueprints for a visitor center. So he had all these huge ideas for the, how this was gonna be an amazing national monument and instead of hiring park superintendents to protect the land the federal government was like just ask some ranchers to check on the site every now and then (laughs) so over the years people found out that there were fossils to be found there and decades go by and people are just picking them off the surface of the land occasionally there would be like another construction project and they would find another deposit of them but by the 1950s Nothing had really happened, and there were no more fossil cycads to be found. So Wheland passed away in the 1950s, and after he did, the National Park Service decommissioned the area. And so fossil cycad was like one of these national monuments that was set aside. There were all these plans to make it this big area of western South Dakota where you could go see more extinct life. There was very few parks that were devoted just to plant life, which would have made it really special too, but then it never came to fruition. So it's one of the few national monuments in the Park Service history that was ever decommissioned by the Park Service.
1: Wow. <laughs> what, a, what a weird story. It's just like a bunch of very unusual choices by one person for the most part, it seems like.
2: Yeah. Because Wheland was like, he was both the biggest champion for this site, as well as the reason that it didn't exist in the first place. Because he had taken all of the fossils. So he had shipped them all back to Yale. Eventually, he left Yale University. I don't know what exactly happened there, but it resulted in him taking the cycads, a lot of them at least, from the collection and putting them in his own backyard. What?
1: Oh. (laughs) So he doesn't even bring them back to the monument? No. That is, that's so weird. Also, you have to imagine like, back then, they don't have the
2: same kind of rigor for paleontological excavations then as they do now. Like, there's so much to be known about the stratigraphic layer where something is found. There's all of this complex mapping, geospatial reference that comes into the account for, like, how to age this material, the context in which it's found. You know, you can learn so much about a fossil if it's found, like, in one orientation versus another. Like, if it's found upside down or right side up, there's so much you can learn. And you just have to imagine none of that existed back then. So, you know, they might've said like, wow, this fossil was found near Edgemont, South Dakota, but it's like, there are thousands, like where it's like five miles, six miles, like seven, like so many different factors go into that stuff. So presumably that information didn't exist. So it's not like they could have been returned to the right spot anyway. But I think after he passed away, his wife called Gale Peabody and she was like, I don't want these. Like, what are you doing with these things? <laughs> So they ended up back in the Yale's collection. There are a couple that have been found in that area since then that there was like a highway building project and those fossils that were found there ended up going back to the South Dakota School of Mines and Technology in Western South Dakota, as well as the only sign that was ever made, which is just this like wooden sign that says Fossil cycad National Monument. And it apparently just sat on like a post- and that was the only acknowledgement on location for the monument itself.
1: That is, what a crazy story. And uh, yeah, that's also disappointing, like that you wouldn't, yeah, you have no idea, like half the information you could have learned is now no longer there. Yeah, it's fr-
2: it's, <laughs> it is frustrating. So we wanted to talk about this story in our, in our series Prehistoric Road Trip. The biggest, hardest part of it was actually trying to find the location anyway, the land is now managed by the Bureau of Land Management. So it's still federal property, but there's nothing else there. And so we had to get like GPS coordinates from a BLM office in South Dakota. And you know, the only directions are like, cross over the bridge and it's the first turn off across this one bridge on the left. And it's just a dirt pull off. There's, you wouldn't find it if you didn't know exactly where to look. I think we drove past it like six times. And finally ended up there. And then the scene for the show is literally me just wandering around a field looking (laughs) pensive. I'm like, oh, wish I knew what could have been here. The conversation just was turned to like fossil resource management. And like, who gets to call the shots? Who gets to decide what's excavated? Who gets to assign a value to it? Is it the paleontologist who excavates it? Or is it the people who live in that area? Is it the people who lived there before Western people decided it was ours? Like, who owns this material? Who gets to write history and rewrite history and interpret history? And I think that is, like, the bigger, more interesting conception of the whole thing, which is Wieland himself felt such a sense of entitlement that I think was just indicative of, you know, academic men then and
1: maybe now (laughs) still I was gonna say this this has like very like old white man vibes to it this whole story I'm like hmm yeah (laughs) this kind of arrogance of like I choose what's interesting and what I want to know and no one can stop me I'm gonna be so persistent that they make this field a national monument because I won't let up
0: and him literally taking them back to his own backyard when he left Yale. Like just that sense of, yeah, entitlement and ownership over those fossils that you would block other people from learning about them or, yeah, researching them. And it is really too bad because I think something that prehistoric road trip gets at is like how important paleobotany is, but how it's not as glamorous and yeah, it'd be interesting to see like an alternate universe where there is a monument to a part of paleobotany.
2: Yeah, it could have been so cool.
0: I'm trying to think like, are
1: there any like monuments or national parks where paleobotany is kind of a central topic? Yeah. Do you know of any? Petrified Forest National Monument in oh, the US. Oh, I've heard yeah. of that. I forgot about that.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's one of these really cool places where there are all these giant silicate, you know, silicified, I guess is the technical term, stumps of ancient trees. Huge ancient trees. Gigantic. And and they make these amazing, beautiful fossils. And it's just, I have never been there, but the impression I get is that you're driving through like a desert-like environment where there are clearly no trees now, but you're driving through this ancient forest, which... If you don't know that's what they are, you might not realize you're passing through an area that was once a forested, really dense place. But the you know, Petrified Forest National Park, I think it's a National Park, a national monument, they run into the same kind of things that Wheeland was perpetuating, which is that people lift the fossils. Like people driving through this area see a lack of security cameras, they see a lack of monitoring and they just think like, well, nobody's going to notice if I take this one little piece or this one little piece or this one little piece. And then a hundred years later, you've got this whole area, which has just been picked over. And fossil theft is a really huge problem for these areas. There was a book published recently. I think it's called Hot Rocks. I can't exactly remember, but it's this compilation of people who have experienced a tremendous amount of regret from later taking fossils from the park, and then they ship them back to the park with these notes that say, like, when I was in third grade in the 1970s, I came here <laughs> on a school trip, and I just, you know, shoved my pockets full of these rocks I thought they were so cool, and then I felt really bad about it, and they, this has haunted me ever since, and I need to, I need to return these rocks, which is an interesting sentiment. Except for the fact that the rocks are like, the fossils are useless from a scientific standpoint. If you can't point exactly to where they were picked up or at when, you can't do anything with them. And so apparently there is a place in Petrified Forest National Park where the Park Service people will just take these rocks that have been returned, these fossils, and just dump them in a giant pile. <laughs> and it's just the giant, it's just like the giant pile of returned fossils and and all of these notes are then kept along, you know, in their records as well. And the notes are really amazing. Some of them are moving. Some of them are like, you know, I picked these up and then I experienced terrible luck and misfortune. And I feel like I've cursed myself. So it's a haunted pile of rocks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The reasons that, that people list in terms of like why they decide to go through the effort of shipping these fossils back to where they took them from, I think is a really interesting just human dimension of paleontology.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah, we hear about, I mean, in Alberta at Dino Provincial Park, they're really intense about the making sure that nothing gets lifted and that sort of thing. But it's interesting to hear that people return things and that's quite the story. I'll have to check that book out.
2: So yeah, that's a, that's my story about Archelon, which is also a story about George Wheland, the interesting <laughs> character from paleontological history who he's a controversial Person, you know, he I think was a a good scientist. He did a lot of interesting things. He also hoarded gigantic fossils (laughs) of
1: ancient plants, as you do. Everyone has their quirks.
0: Well, one thing we were wondering as someone who's worked in museums, visited a lot of different museums, and plays Animal Crossing. How do you think the Animal Crossing New Horizons Museum, like, rates to the museums you've seen? Oh
2: man, it's it's beautiful. It's amazing, frankly. That was one of the big reasons why I decided to pick up Animal Crossing in the first place. Because I didn't play any of the other Animal Crossing games. And I have the tendency to get really obsessed with certain things <laughs> And like Netflix shows or certain video games. And I become so hyper-focused, I will do nothing else until I feel like I've satisfied that urge. It's actually a huge problem because I could just spend months of my time fixated on something at the expense of all other things I need to do with my life. And I know this about myself, which is why I refused to allow myself to play Animal Crossing. Because I knew, (laughs) I knew if I got this game, it was going to be bad for me. That it would occupy so much of my time. And when I saw screen shares or screen images of the museum, I was like, I, ha- I have to. Like, I, ju- I have to play this game. And when I started playing it and had a chance to like go to the museum and see how all these exhibits were coming together with more donations, like... Frankly, it's just really, really well designed. You can tell that the people who were focused on that design aspect of the game, they did their research, you know. They clearly went to some of the best museums in the world today. They took a lot of cues from some fantastic aquariums. But really, the Fossil Hall, I think the layout of it is so compelling because it does take a fairly traditional approach to telling the history of life, which is that when you enter that first hallway, you really are starting at the beginning of some of the earliest life forms and then progressing through that naturally. And when you enter that giant hall, the theme continues. It's a little less clear because the hall itself is so large, but the layout of it is wonderful. And I know that there are some there was at least one exhibition designer at the Field Museum who was on another podcast talking about this. She actually works in exhibit design, and she agreed with me. And what I'm saying is that, like, they really did their research. There's interesting multi-dimensional views. So, like, you know, it's cool that they have, like, the balcony area, and you can look, get a different perspective on the fossils versus, like, standing in certain parts of the exhibits. And then it all came together for me when there's that one spot where you can stand in the fossil hall, where you can see the whole image and you can see the asteroid coming to you. And that to me was actually a really exciting moment that I didn't expect at all in the game. And it was, I mean, I just visit that room on occasion when I'm feeling nostalgic about visiting museums. Because even though I worked at the field, you know, up until the end of last year, I haven't been in the museum in a really long time. And as somebody who goes to those places to reflect and, become inspired, it really was like the best substitute to try and, you know, scratch that itch a little bit. But the other thing I really like about the whole paleontology and fossil hall too, is the connections that it makes in that third room to extant versus extinct life. So really interesting comparison of like how, depending on, you know, what species the villager is, you can see some, like a direct line of lineage. And I think that, that was a step they didn't need to take, but they did. And I appreciate it because there's so few like links that show how life today is linked to the fossil record. And so I think that was just a really interesting educational narrative that they kind of slipped in there subtly. So I'm a huge fan, but I think that's obvious.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I love the, The shadowy silhouettes too, because I've seen so many museums use that technique. So it's those like little details that, like you said, make me so nostalgic for like pre-COVID time museum trips. It's even like the sound that your little villager feet make on the carpet. I'm like that muffled noise. I'm like, it's a museum. (laughs) You sense it.
0: Yeah. It's really nice to hear your perspective about it for sure.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Someone who's spent time in so many cool museums. Yeah. I mean, I think there, I could be a little
2: nitpicky and be like, there's not enough information on the sign. So like there's, uh, it's not a complete picture, obviously. But I think, you know, for somebody who worked in a natural history museum, I visit a lot of museums. I think they did a great job in terms of rendering that in a video game, like way better than I would have expected. And the aquarium aspect of it is a whole other level of like fascination for me. I'm a little bit pickier about that because I just happen to live with a freshwater ichthyologist. So (laughs) he studies, you know, freshwater fishes and he'll be like, why do you have this species of salmon in the same display as this other, they don't coexist together. So I have like a little bit of extra insider knowledge that said, they still did a really great job by having like the separate freshwater versus marine environments. And I thought that was like a really nice touch. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> I, I feel bad every time like animal crossing lets you throw like a saltwater fish into the pond i just feel like i'm i'm killing the fish i'm i feel <laughs> terrible i'm like okay some nearest body of water I'll just stop this here right it's gonna die
2: i know i felt that way i had a snapping turtle that was standing guard on one of my ponds and I, at first i was like this is awesome and then the days turned into weeks into months <laughs> and then he was still there and i was like I feel really bad. And so eventually I gave him uh, to my partner who put him in his bathroom. (laughs) And that seems like a little nicer than just having it like hang out in the snow. It's like the
1: snapping turtle is not doing very well. Yeah. (laughs) Awesome. Well, we also wanted to ask, I mean... We talked a bit about Prehistoric Road Trip. What was it like working on that project? You got to be part of some really cool looking digs and you found some really neat stuff during, especially like the Triceratops dig and things like that.
2: Yeah. I mean, that show was some of the most fun I've ever had in my life. Um, I think what I loved so much about Prehistoric Road Trip is that I was given so much creative control, probably way too much creative control on the series because I, you know, I pitched the idea to Chicago Public TV, and they liked it. But when I pitched the show originally, it was just going to be a one hour special set in South Dakota, because that's where I'm from. And I know a lot about the geology there. And I was like, there's really cool stuff, we could fill an hour. And we ended up sharing this idea with PBS, like the national distributor of all public TV content in the US. And they really liked the idea too. But their feedback was one hour isn't going to be long enough and we want you to go to some sites outside of South Dakota. So then I had the delightful task of making a three hour long program that spanned a huge amount of geologic time. It just really opened it up to not just focusing on, you know, three individual sites in Western South Dakota that were emblematic of, you know. The Archean period and then the Cretaceous and then the Pleistocene, because that's all I had originally. So then it was just like we could look at the geologic scale at such a more granular level. So we're not just talking about the megafauna of the Cretaceous, but we were able to like go on a freshwater clam dig. We were able to like talk about paleobotany. We were just able to really take the idea of an extinct environment and try to fill in the gaps in terms of the biota of what was living there and the conditions in which they were living. So that made it so fun. It also made it a massive challenge because we only had one summer to film everything. And if you know anything about the northern Great Plains of the United States, and I'm talking about Montana, Wyoming, South Dakota, North Dakota, and Nebraska... It's a huge amount of geographic space. Staggering. And I don't think people who, are, who live on the East Coast have a concept of it, really. Because you imagine like, oh, we're in New York City and we need to go to New Jersey and it's going to take X number of hours to drive there. But you're really not going a, a huge distance. And the opposite is true in, you know, trying to drive from South Dakota to Montana. I mean, it takes you 13 hours. This wild, just driving nonstop. That's how long my trip was when I went to school at the University of Montana and where my parents lived in South Dakota. So it's a huge amount of space. And knowing that we only had about eight or nine weeks to film everything for the show meant that we were having to coordinate with all of these field crews from dozens of different places. So we were working with paleontologists from the Royal Ontario Museum and tribal community colleges and everything in between and so their field work seasons are really short and we had a crew of seven people who had like one or two days where we could meet up with anybody so all of that was just like a tremendous amount of uncertainty because you have some idea of what you want to film with the people when you get there but you don't know what you're gonna find because it hasn't (laughs) been found before so that made the logistics of it kind of challenging but we got so lucky with like the weather we we never had a car breakdown we there was never a dig we weren't able to make it to because of road conditions or like a, you know, lack of planning. So it ended up all falling in place, and the result is what you see on the show. But I think it also gives a little bit of a it's definitely a romanticized look at like field work and paleontology because I'm just showing up day of and being like let's have fun, <laughs> and you know we get to enjoy a day or two with each group and then move on, and it doesn't really highlight the whole process of science, which is like a lot of these researchers are out there for weeks and weeks at a time. It can be really slow and like sometimes unrewarding and frustrating, especially when you're out there looking for a certain thing, you can't find it. And there's some paleontologists we talked to who spent like 13 years trying to answer a question by finding fossils in areas they didn't know that they would find them in. So I think there are some aspects of the show I'm really proud of in terms of the diversity of places and people we were able to showcase, but there are other aspects of it. I'm like, it is not this easy. And the show, I think, makes it look a lot, a lot more seamless than it is.
0: I really appreciate in the third episode, how much of an emphasis there is on, yeah, indigenous paleontologists and just indigenous communities and paleontology as well as climate change. Like, I think the way that you brought it sort of home in those ways and it wasn't just about fossils was really cool. Thank you. That was kind of the
2: goal from the beginning. Having grown up in a place like South Dakota, your history lesson begins with homesteaders. You know, that's really kind of where we pick up in the public school system. And that's where my understanding of history comes from, too, because the story that my family tells is always you know, my great-great-grandparents from either side of the family lived in England or Norway or wherever, and they overcame these obstacles to make it to the United States, and they homesteaded in this area, in this inhospitable part of the country, and, you know, they really pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and, and that's like the history, but it completely, completely overshadows the fact that people were living in the United States, present-day United States, for 10,000 years or more, like, and that our history only begins in, like, the late 1800s and moves forward, I, I thought it was just a real missed opportunity to tell the deeper history, like, in so many different ways. And one of the things that always bothered me when thinking about paleontology is this overwhelming narrative that these things were discovered for the first time. Like George Whelan discovered Archelon. George Whelan discovered the fossil cycads. And while he may have written about them in the scientific literature, doesn't mean he was the first person to ever come across these materials. I mean, you think about like, and I'm speaking of this just from, you know, from an outsider's perspective, because it's not my culture, and it's not my heritage, it's not my belief system. But there are so many creation stories and religious beliefs from indigenous communities that talk about like turtles. Like we are all living on one giant turtle. Like I have a hard time imagining that there weren't indigenous people coming across Archelon type fossils and having their own interpretations of them. So Adrienne Mayer wrote a book called Fossil Legends of the First Americans where she went around the United States and collected oral histories from indigenous community leaders and and peoples trying to compile some of the earlier interpretations of fossils from Native people who would come across them and assign them meaning. And it's just a completely different way of looking at the history of prehistory from that lens. And so that's something we really wanted to highlight in Prehistoric Road Trip, because I think it's a it's a, certainly a history of paleontology that's not acknowledged in Western science. And I think there's so much more to be learned from looking at deep history through that lens, through the lens of anything that's not Western
1: white scientists? It's refreshing to see because even though I think I've been taught about it in school and university specifically, but I don't see it, I guess, in more popular media as a discussion. So it, it's nice to see that brought forward and I'd, I'd like to see that more in the future and a definite emphasis on it. So I
2: think there are fields of discipline that have done a lot better job of acknowledging Indigenous knowledge. I think botany certainly is one where you look at, you know, the monoculture of the United States and we're all somewhat confused, like, how did it get so bad? And why did the Dust Bowl exist? And you've got indigenous peoples who are like, we could, we could have told you, like we did tell you, you know, you didn't listen to us. We have all this knowledge and understanding of these, you know, ecological systems. We've been living here for thousands of years, like we had it figured out. And then you came here with your own ideas and Now you're confused why there's, like, drought and a dust bowl in the 1920s. I don't know. Could have avoided that, probably. But, you know, there are fields like paleontology where I just don't think it's been a consideration. And in order for that to be a consideration, there also has to be an acknowledgement of the ways in which paleontology as a field has absolutely predated upon indigenous knowledge and taken advantage of it. In terms of, like, these early scientists having no knowledge of the land, no... No spatial awareness, no idea where they were. These places hadn't really been mapped yet in in that kind of sense. And they relied so much on indigenous people to even find the fossils they were looking for. But it's so rare to see an acknowledgement of those people, especially acknowledgement by name. It's usually just like a young Indian boy led us to the site. And that's just so gross. And so in order for like paleontology as a field to progress, I think there has to be a reckoning and a true acknowledgement of the fact that Some of the most prominent names, some of the people who we celebrate the most in these fields, like maybe we should take a more critical look at how they were able to accomplish those things and acknowledge like the other people who contributed to it, who don't get all of the glory, (laughs) for lack of better words. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Another question we had was, if you have any advice for sort of aspiring science communicators like ourselves.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, what I think is so cool about this podcast too is like Beyond Flathers. Like the, the second I saw the name of it, I knew exactly what it was about. You know, it's, you're taking something, you're taking something of the, you know, common lexicon, the American, you know, I guess international cl- culture, taking something like Animal Crossing, which is such a beautiful point of departure for a deeper conversations about science. And you're using that as a springboard you know, to connect with others and to also provide information. And I see initiatives like this as really exciting places for science communication, because there's originality to it, you have your own interpretation, you can expand on common concepts. And the technology has made it really accessible so that you don't have to have the support of a big institution, you don't have to have access to giant recording studios you don't you don't need those things now because the way that we've democratized knowledge and you know the support given to original interpretations of that knowledge i think it's just as really opens up the world of possibilities if people take the initiative to do it so i think that's one huge hurdle and one big barrier for some who want to get into the field of science communication but they're they're concerned that they don't know enough, quote unquote, or that they're not experienced enough, or they don't have the right credentials. And I think all of that is, it doesn't matter. Like that's not the thing that matters. Science communication is about connecting people with the world. And if you can do that, it doesn't matter what tools you use or what the format is, there are so many different ways of doing it. And it just requires taking the initiative and Creating a program that you can call your own, that you can shape as your own, and going out and doing it. So the practice of science communication is in itself science communication. When people ask me, they're like, I want to be a science communicator, but I don't know where to start. I tell them, the next time you're in a cab, the next time you're checking out at the grocery store, if there's an opportunity that presents itself, take advantage of it. So I don't mean to say, like, going through the checkout line at the grocery store. You should be like, you want to know a fact about bugs? (laughs) But you you might. That might come up. I was at a gas station in North Dakota as part of filming for this trip, and I was just standing there, like, waiting to get my peanuts or whatever, and this woman was talking about hops. She was the cashier, and she said, I don't know what hops are. Like, we talk about hops in beer, but what's a hop? And I was like... I know about hops. I can tell you about hops. And I was like, a hop is like, there's part of a plant. And the one cool fact about hops is that they're used in beer, you know, and they contribute to the fermentation of this beautiful liquid that we consume (laughs) in way too many quantities. But, you know, hops are really closely related to cannabis and the cannabis plant. They're in the same family. Hmm. Um, That's really interesting. Because if you look at like, I don't know, the things that humans consume in order to get their buzz. Like they have a similar medicinal properties, similar attributes because they're, they're closely related. So I shared some kind of like fact like that with her. And she was just like, huh, I didn't know that. That's interesting. Science communication. It doesn't have to, <laughs> it, it doesn't have to be complex. It just is seeing an opportunity to share what you know and to help other people on their own journey of understanding. And that can take so many different iterations. I think there are parents who are great science communicators when they get their children invested in the natural world. You have science communicators like me that use new media like YouTube or podcasts or even broadcast media to connect with people. There's podcasting. There are web comics. You know, there's there's so many opportunities. And I think it's just, like I said, the act of doing it, it really opens so many doors that you can't even anticipate because we are in unprecedented times in terms of Means of communication. And so I think it's a really, really exciting time for anybody to be in science communication because itself as a field is just now beginning to open up and be seen as a real profession in a way that it hasn't before. I think we know about science writers, and science writing has been a thing for decades, but science communication in its form of taking advantage of these new technologies
1: is still in its early stages and that's so fun it's fun to be a part of that it's incredibly fun like it's it's like taking all of like the fun parts like arts and performance and and mixing them up and and humor and putting them into something that's traditionally been very like academic or or yeah like you try and distance it from like the public so Yeah. yeah it's it's an exciting thing to be a part of
2: I think there's a time, too, where, like, people really poo-pooed on the expression of enthusiasm in academia.
1: Like, that it was
2: just seen as unprofessional to get super excited about your stuff. And I hate that mentality because I'm like... You're going to spend, okay, you're going to spend 17 years in education, getting your PhD or whatever, and you feel like you don't have the agency to get excited about tapeworms, even though you spent all of this time (laughs) learning about it and you're a global expert. Like, if anybody should be able to get excited about that, it should be you. And, you know, what a gift. What a gift to spend all of that time accumulating all of that knowledge to hold it in your brain. And if you want to stand on your rooftop and shout to the high heavens about how cool tapeworms or other parasites are, you should feel free to do so. Absolutely. That's my soapbox.
0: (laughs) That's like the really fun thing about the brain scoop, I think, is just that you give this opportunity for so many people who work behind the scenes in museums to share their excitement and to share like these actual objects that they're really excited about?
2: Yeah. I mean, it's been such a privilege to be able to use my platform to help others share their passion. I mean, I can't, I can't talk about it because I get so emotional (laughs) about it, but yeah, it's working on the brain scoop was an absolute honor and probably something I could have done for the rest of my life, honestly. But it's all to say like, you know, a project might end, but that doesn't mean the passion for the project ends. And it doesn't mean that there can't be other iterations of this sort of thing. And for you too, as well, like even inviting me to be a part of your podcast, like, that's awesome. I hope you get to invite other people as like other guests. And yeah, I'd be curious to know from you too, like what, what has surprised you about this process? What have you enjoyed as you both have
1: become like science communicators in your own right? I think for me, it's just been the amazing welcomingness of the community like it it didn't take long to meet people who we'd never met but like through Twitter or and to be invited into like discord channels and yeah just to see how excited people got and how like friendly the community's been and sending us dms and being excited about like the poop quiz or whatever we put on Instagram (laughs) like that to me has been like I I I don't know. I thought it would be much more distant than it feels like it already feels like we've only been at this for, what, six months now, Sophia? Yeah. And yet it's, yeah, it's given us a really cool community to be a part of. So that's that's been lovely. And it's a very, like, cooperative community. Like, it doesn't feel competitive in a way that I thought maybe doing any kind of media might, because there are a lot of podcasts out there. So I thought maybe we'd be duking it out for those listens. But that's that's (laughs) not at all
0: the the attitude. Yeah, it's so supportive and I think I never really realized that there would be listeners from all over the world and that we would hear from them and and we're a pretty small podcast too like and that's been huge. And I think also for me, I've had like a really interesting relationship with science kind of over my life because when I was in high school, I loved science and I really thought that I wanted to be a scientist and I I started out in my undergrad doing honors ecology and I was definitely planning to like go on and do a PhD in ecology, but I just became so interested in writing and journalism and audio production and podcasting that I thought science communication would be more up my alley. But I think once you kind of stop being like a serious scientist, it's like you said, Emily, like I I lost the confidence to talk about these things. Like I just felt like, I should defer to Olivia and let Olivia talk about these things. But I've gotten to do some of my own episodes and, yeah, realized that I can communicate about these things and that I can do it accessibly and that I have things that I can care about within science. So kind of getting to dive back into science through this podcast has been just such a nice way to, like, remember that whole part of myself that loved science. Yeah, Yeah, it's been great that Mm -hmm. way.
2: I think in general, those are just trends that really demonstrate how much more open science has become, at least in my lifetime. We're still obviously overcoming that in so many ways and for so many different communities, science is still very hostile and and not welcoming. But what I've experienced through science communication is just that we have reached a point in the global awareness that there are too many important things that require an understanding of science from medicine to climate change to everything in between. And we need communicators. We always need communicators. When I think about when I started BrainScoop, it was because I had my own community on Tumblr. Like I had a couple thousand readers who followed my blog and who was that? I was just an art student, right? Who really liked natural history museums. And I got a chance to you know, co-host a YouTube video about it. And that just launched my own career into science communication online. And I never thought I'd get picked up by a museum. And then the Field Museum offered me a job. And that's like, been my career. And it's opened so many other doors and opportunities. And I think it's because I embrace the fact that I'm not a scientist myself. But we shouldn't let the lack of you know academic credentials prevent somebody from feeling like they can make meaningful contributions to this field because we need them everywhere. you know we need people making podcasts about these links between animal crossing and the real world. We need people part of their own local communities advocating for the nature preserves in our backyards. We need your average homeowner to put out bird seed like we need we need so many different people exhibiting and expressing their interest in their investment in the natural world and it takes so many different shapes and forms and i think that sense of welcomeness in the community is one because it we're i think so many people are realizing there are so many different communities to be reached and we all have the capacity to reach a different one so like i'm from south dakota and there aren't very many well-known people from south dakota and You know, so the opportunities I have to like go back to my own hometown community and sort of be somebody who can champion science in that part of the country, which is traditionally more conservative and and not as well science minded, for lack of better words. It's just as really, you know, you feel that there are so many hundreds of millions of people in the United States and we're not, nobody's reaching all of them. There are so many other opportunities and that's just in the U.S. I know you you all are in Canada. So, like, think of all the Canadians that you haven't reached yet. There's so many. Just start
1: knocking on doors. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, and it's interesting you say, too, like, your background is in art. And I've said to Sophia many times, I'm, I'm always shocked by uh, – because my background was in art, too, like, back in high school and stuff. I was just surrounded by art. I was at an arts high school and – in like it seems like science and art were very very well divided and completely different topics and I had to choose one or the other I went to I would go to animation school or I'd become an ecologist or something so and I ended up choosing science but then in the end it seems like I didn't really have to make that choice like with the podcast I've been able to illustrate and everything but something I've also noticed is how many scientists I know who are also artists like it's it's amazing, actually. And science communicators, like, you're a painter and an artist. And even, like, I was saying to Sophia, like, Allie Ward, who is the host of Ologies, I think she has, like, a painting degree or something. So it's kind of amazing how you find that in the end, things are, like, there is no black or white between these topics. They are very infused. And I think you know, maybe old school naturalism has that sort of artsy journalistic quality observing what's happening outside. And I I found that really interesting, too, about science communication is it, it really blurs that line. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I
2: love that, too. There's so many people at the Field Museum, too, who have backgrounds in art, especially the specimen preparators. And that always kind of surprised me. But that's how I got started in natural history, too, was like specimen preparation. And it's because... Of the things that you learn in art school, your observation skills, your hand eye coordination, your attention to detail. I was really surprised that even though I started, you know, volunteering in this museum, I was able to pick up faunal osteology identification better than the graduate students in those areas. So I was the TA for the graduate level vertebrate osteology class, and I taught archaeology and paleontology and uh, wildlife biology students how to identify different random bones they might come across in their field work and tell them what species they were and how you can tell you know a mouse from a ground squirrel and you know just looking at the morphological differences of skulls and like something that i just picked up naturally because i had spent the last four years figuring out the best way to render a white wine bottle on a white background (laughs) Like those are the things I learned in art school where I'm like, I'm never going to use this. I'm never going to know. It's never going to matter. Like the value systems of like, you know, how I painted this draping fabric, how is that ever going to help? And then when you have to identify white animal skulls, you're like, oh, I know all the different characters. I can see them. And I became, you know, really good in that area, which gave me the confidence to feel like I can make valuable contributions to this field because I think sometimes when science is taught, it's taught in an uncreative way. And it's taught a lot with just like math and math isn't always the most visual thing. And so if you're a visual learner, I think it just demonstrates there are other ways to learn about science that have not been given the um, attention they deserve.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Working in environmental science, it's like hard stats all the time. (laughs) So it's, it's nice to like, you know, watch these videos and see the the more morphological studies and things that are more observation-based. I, I really enjoy that. I was also going to ask one more question um, that's a little lighter. We wanted to know, what is it like to work with, like, Hank Green and the Nerdfighter team? Because Sophie and I both watched Crash Course, like, religiously. It got me through chemistry, like, and yeah. so I really, <laughs> I'm like, that, that must have been really neat and a, a cool experience. Oh, yeah. I mean... The fact
2: that I was living in the same town as Hank Green and didn't realize it when I was an undergrad, it just blew my mind when I, um, cause I'd been a nerd fighter for a long time, but I apparently never put together the connection that like Hank from Vlogbrothers was like in the same town as I was. But my, my background with Hank goes back prior to Brain Scoop. So I was the first person to apply for the first job Hank ever advertised for his company. So this was like back in 2011 and he was still working, I think, through EcoGeek. And this was before Crash Course. This was before SciShow. But kind of at the period of time where he was really taking on a lot more educational content. So he was hiring like a personal assistant kind of job or an administrative assistant, and I applied for it. And it w- I just remember it was such a cool application process because it wasn't like, send me your resume. It was like, make a thumbnail and write a script for a science thing and explain like how you would respond to this comment on YouTube. And it was so cool. I applied for it. I got through like a couple of rounds where it was just like me and another candidate. And I was so excited. I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to work for Hank Green. This is going to be amazing. <laughs> and then I never heard back. And I was just like, oh, no, I thought I was going to maybe get this job. And, and so then I, I just kind of like went back to my museum stuff. And then, you know, a year and a half later, I get an email from Hank. And he's like, can we come film there? And I was like, he doesn't remember me. <laughs> so Hank, I met Hank at the museum and we filmed a couple of videos together. And it was through like, I don't know, we were just chit-chatting at the end of the day. And he asked me like, so what's an art major like you doing volunteering in a museum like this? Like, what do you want to do with your life? And I didn't think about it. I just, I just, I don't know what I was thinking, but I just responded. I was like, well, I applied to be your assistant and you never got back to me. <laughs> and he was like, oh, dang. Oh my God. I am so sorry. He's like, uh, well, you didn't get the job. So, <laughs> which was hilarious because it was like nine months later. And so that night <laughs> I went home and it was kind of funny. He was very nice about it. He emailed me later that night, and he's like, I'm so sorry to let you know you didn't get the job. However, would you like to work with me on some educational videos? He's like, I think it would be really cool for you to have your own show. And that's kind of how the Brain Scoop started. And so just the opportunity to work with somebody like that to help me get my own project launched, I mean, that's an opportunity I don't think very many people get. And I, I knew that. And I also knew that, like, if Hank Green, who is a science person himself and who is, like, so good at commanding these or like helping to direct these online communities and and direct, not in a, like direct in a way of like helping other people channel their positive interests and their positive intentions and like put them towards good things, helping to decrease world suck. You know, (laughs) like that was something that I could get behind. That was like a mission that I never saw reflected in any of the other organizations I wanted to be a part of. And I think that just made it, made it so much more accessible. And so Working with him early days of the Brain Scoop was awesome. I would have never got to where I could be without him and Michael Aranda. And then just the, the sense of community I've experienced from Nerdfighteria since then has been amazing. Um, and then I've had the chance to work with uh, Hank as well as the Complexly office in Indianapolis to like, I hosted my own crash course mini series about big history and that was amazing. And Brandon Brungard, who has been a longtime producer editor for Complexly, worked on Brain Scoop for like three years. And he helped really bring the channel kind of to the next level of professionalism and helped us break out of our box a little bit and try a bunch of different things. And he also like traveled with me to Harvard and to Berlin, and we were able to film in Denver, like we were really all over the place. So I think that's been like the greatest educational experience for me is just like being able to kind of tap into those communities and see how they've been able to build those educational programs. But yeah, I mean, I feel like the luckiest person ever. It was awesome.
1: Yeah. And I mean, you've had such success. Like, I mean, there, I think the whole community and, and starting it from a place of like shared values of respect and curiosity and really creating a positive environment I see that too in the channel. It's it's really kind of cool to see how those values can result in really effective education and a very welcoming, accessible space. So I, I know I definitely want to try and achieve that in this and all all the science communication I do. It's And I think part of that integrity comes down to a
2: lot of us realizing that if we're going to be in this space, if we're going to be seen as public figures, if we're going to create educational content, then we have to be We have to maintain an image of somebody that people will want to continue to look up to and it just means having to live your life with true integrity. You know, I I don't walk out of my house thinking that I can just disappear into a crowd. Every time I leave my house, I know that if somebody recognizes me, they expect me to be the person that they see on TV or see on their computer screens. And that can be debilitating for a lot of people, but I use it as a sense of accountability. And it makes me behave good in public, you know, <laughs> even when I might not be in a good mood, but like, you know, I, you don't disrespect the person ringing up your coffee. They might be a viewer. Like <laughs> you would just have to, you have to do that. You have to be that person. And eventually when you, you start behaving like that, you, ju- you just turn into a person like that. You just, and that's just who I've become. And that might seem hard for people to realize, but like I was a moody art student before I started doing YouTube. Like I was cynical as heck. I didn't think there was anything that anybody could do to make a difference in the world. And then I met somebody like Hank and you see the power of positive influence and you see the power of truly investing yourself authentically into what you care about and what drives you. And he saw that in me. He's like, I can see that you care about this museum stuff. Let's propel this forward. Let's launch this. Let's see where this can go. And it changed me as a person. And yeah, it's just, you know, if you want more people to be involved in these things that you care so much about, you have to continue making it a community that is welcoming to everybody. And that really continues to push us in, like, inclusivity. And, you know, that manifests itself in so many different ways. Like, when I make a video about menstruation, I know that we need to use gender-neutral language. Like, because even the act of using the gender binary is excluding however many, you know, can't even anticipate how many people you might turn off because of it. And so, you know, constantly thinking of ways like, how can we make our content more inclusive? How can we address narratives that, you know, people care about that are not part of the popular lexicon? Like, how do we use our platform for good is always what I I come back to.
0: It's really been our experience with, you know, this intersection of people who love Animal Crossing and love animals and conservation like it's just such a sweet supportive community like olivia was saying and you want to make content for that kind of community it's just really lovely Mm -hmm. yeah
2: i think too especially in the united states like the media climate is such a garbage fire dump like it gives you the impression that everything is terrible that there isn't anything to look forward to there is no sense of community or unity anywhere and that's not true. And it, it just becomes so hard to find it and it can be so hard to experience it, including during a global pandemic when you can't be with the pe- your people. You have to find other ways to bring people together. And science communication, online communities, like that's how we're finding this sense of unity and, and you know helping to keep people afloat when it would be so easy to become disenfranchised otherwise. And so, I don't know. I, I also am always trying to be cognizant of toxic positivity, a new term I've learned this year. And something that has given me a lot to think about is like, do I contribute to toxic positivity? Are there things that I could do to be more realistic about the world? Because I think people look at me and they're like, she's bubbly all the time. Like everything's great. But there's just, yeah, we're all learning. And I think being transparent about that learning process is another way that we make it more accessible.
0: Well, was there anything else that you... Wanted to talk about Emily or... Um,
2: I mean, I could go all day, honestly, <laughs> but we've been here almost two hours. So um, so I not exactly other than um, I'm really obsessed with Animal Crossing and nobody else will understand this except for maybe you two. But I want you to know I made two extra accounts on my Switch just so I could have three gigantic houses. And I have themed every room in all of them. And one of my favorite rooms is that I got some... I got excavation pit wallpaper from Sahara what? and I put it in the base. Yes, I know it. It's, yeah, it's excavation flooring and it's in the shape of like a hadrosaur. And so I have a paleontology excavation oh pit God. in the basement of one of my houses. I will send you a screen grab. It's my favorite place on all of Animal Crossing. That's amazing. I made a dig site. Yeah. Wow. I am, my (laughs) sister and her husband got Animal Crossing in March as well, and they were pretty obsessed with it for a while, and I, then I didn't realize they just haven't logged on in months. They got a dog, like they got an actual dog (laughs) to care about, and I don't have a dog. And so they got a puppy, and then I didn't realize they hadn't logged on in like nine months. And I keep sending them presents. And <laughs> <laughs> like I was, I was like, "You guys didn't, you didn't get my gifts." They're like, "We haven't even." I'm like, "I send you presents
1: like every other Aww, day." You're like sending you them, them letters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all <I'm> just <laughs> sitting in the mailbox.
2: <laughs> I know it because I play every day. I seriously do every day. I gotta wake up. I gotta oh. see what's in the store. And every day it's something disappointing.
1: I'm like, Come <laughs> on, guys, Timmy Tommy, you're okay. good. Now I have to buy it like from Sahara because now that I know there's dig site flooring. It's such crap shoot because it's like, you never know
2: what you're going to get. And like half the time I just get like industrial wall. I'm like, what am I going to do with this? I got surveillance wallpaper <laughs> once. It was the creepiest thing. It's just wall to wall to wall security cameras. What? It's so weird.
1: I was like, don't make <laughs> this weird animal crossing. But they crossed a line anyway. With the surveillance wallpaper. Yeah. Big brother.
0: Nintendo's watching us. <laughs> Tom Nook
1: is it's like, I know Nook. you're there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: Give me my money. Yeah. Well, it's so cool. I like I'm so glad that we could have you on and that you love Animal Crossing and yeah, yeah. it's just it's honestly such an honor.
2: No, thank you. I mean, I don't know if your listeners knew this, but I'm the one who reached out to ask about being a guest on this podcast. I was like, can I, can I please? Like, (laughs) I will love to be on your podcast. So thank you for having me.
0: When you took the poop quiz, we were We're just so excited. (laughs)
1: We took our poop quiz. We were like, she, she answered them. Well, then you
2: know that I got like one out of ten right. It was really. I, <laughs> it was hard. I, I was like, I don't know anything.
1: When I was like searching up the pictures, I was like, this is what, this is what skunk poop looks like. What? How? I also I have no idea. I, as someone who's worked in zoos, I have to say that I find scat studies really difficult because depending on what the animal eats, their poop can look completely different. Just a fact for people's pockets to pull out at the cashier, like Emily said. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah. You can also
2: let them know that one of the ways they do the poop studies is by putting feces in toaster ovens and baking it in order to dehydrate it so they can dissect it later.
1: Yeah, we had a microwave uh, at the zoo and it was called the the poo microwave. Um, And that's where the (laughs) elephant's poop went um, to be dehydrated and then... Put in plastic, and then I would hand that to children. And they'd always be like, Is it dirty? And I was like, Honestly, probably not. But also, a thousand people have touched it. So it's probably dirty, but like not in the way that you think it's dirty because it's never been sanitized. (laughs) Well, probably now with COVID, (laughs) it has. But can I tell you a dung beetle story
2: too? Absolutely. Okay, I know we've gone way too long. (laughs) But so when I learned that there were dung beetles in Animal Crossing, I flipped. I was so excited. But, so, I don't know, this is tangentially related. So I've always loved dung beetles. I think they're such a great symbol of, like, organisms who literally take other people's crap and turn it into something good. And so they're just, you know, I love dung beetles. And we made a diorama at the Field Museum a couple of years ago, a hyena diorama that we crowdfunded for. So, like, Brain Scoop viewers made this thing possible. We raised over $150,000 And got to build the first full-scale habitat diorama in field museum history in like 50 years. It was awesome. And one of the things that's in the diorama, my favorite thing, not the hyenas, not the background landscape, not even the turtle that's in there. It's the dung beetle. There is a tiny little dung beetle at the front of the diorama that is rolling a tiny little dung ball. And the thing about the dung ball is that it went through three different iterations of scientific review because... At first, the dung ball was simply too large. There was not a dung beetle species that could roll a dung ball that large in that part of (laughs) the African savanna at that time. Because there was no elephants. So like the dung beetles, like where there are elephants, there are bigger dung beetles because there's bigger poops. Makes sense, right? But like where there aren't elephants, there are not dung beetles that get that large. And so at first the dung ball was too large for the habitat. And then the next iteration of the dung ball was that it wasn't fibrous enough. Oh. Like it, it, need, it wasn't the right color <laughs> and it needed more texture based on like the kind of grasses that the ungulates in that area would have been eating. And so by the third time, the um, fabrication people in the exhibitions workshop finally got the dung ball right. But I have one of the three iterations of the
1: dung ball and it's sitting on my bookshelf. And is it, it, was it like constructed? Like did someone sculpt it or was, is this real legitimate dung? No,
2: it's, um, it's sculpted out of, um, insulation foam. (laughs) And so, yeah, so this is the one that was not fibrous enough. It's amazing. Small. It's, you know, the size of a gumball and it is brown and lightly textured, but not enough texture. So that's what this is. It's just like a little fabricated poop ball. Wow. Uh, And so, yeah, it's my dung beetle story.
0: Well, thank you so much, Emily. And thanks, everyone, for listening. If you're new to the show, please subscribe. And make sure to check out Prehistoric Road Trip and The Brain Scoop for more from Emily. And tune in next week to learn more about the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing New Horizons. Bye. Bye.